So if you don't know who I am, I'm Brad Owens. I'm the RUF pastor here in town at UAB. Stepping into year two this week has been welcome week. It's been really fun. Um, but I just wanted to begin by telling you all thank you so much uh, in so many ways. Thank you for your support of RUF at UAB as a church and many of you as families and individuals. And even within the past several months, a lot of you have joined our support team. And that's been so encouraging. Um, but even more importantly and more personally, I just wanted to thank you all for loving us so well as we have walked through the hardi- hardest and the scariest valley that we've ever walked through this summer. I'll explain a little bit more about that, but just didn't go well with the birth of our fourth child. But it had me thinking about yesterday, that little Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision, and how at the beginning it says that valleys are so often the places where we get a vision of who God is, where he shows us more of his character. And Ann and I have talked a lot about this, but in this valley that we have walked through this summer, we have seen the tender care of Jesus, and we've seen it primarily through you all loving us and caring for us. So thank you so much for the meals, the child care, the prayers, uh, checking in to see how, I'm, seeing how we're doing. It means the world to us, um, especially just that we've only been here a year, and it took us a while to kind of figure out where to land. So we've only been at Red Mountain officially since the beginning of the year, but you guys have loved us so well. I just want to say thank you. So in RUF this semester, we had our first large group on Thursday. We are journeying through the Gospel of Matthew. So you can keep praying for me. Gospel of Matthew is a big gospel, 28 chapters. We only have like 12 to 13 weeks of large groups. I'm trying to figure out which passages to do. I had it narrowed down to like 40. Now I've got, I think, 20, but I need to get it down to 12. So we're getting there. But I just wanted to share with you what we looked at together on Thursday night with our college students So the opening to Matthew's gospel. And Matthew really opens his gospel with a bang. He knows that if you want to captivate the attention of your audience, then you begin with a genealogy. (laughs) Yeah, it's exhilarating stuff. But on the surface, you know, this doesn't seem very compelling. But I hope that this, this morning will at least give you a glimpse into how theologically rich this family tree of Jesus really is, and how it points us to the grace that Jesus comes to bring to the world. So there are four Gospels in the Bible, and each one is a carefully crafted portrait of Jesus. Each one highlights different things about Jesus, about who He is, about what He came to do. I've been thinking about it like just holding a newborn baby. You know, we've got little Jack, he's almost two months old. And just the way that you hold a newborn and are mesmerized about different things about them, their little tiny hands and feet... Their eyes, the way they just look around, they're so interested in the world. Uh, Their mouth and their smiles, you know, they do the sleep smiles at first for a while, and then they finally start actually smiling at you a few months in. Um, But just the way that we would hold a newborn baby and just adore certain features of the baby, the gospel writers each hold up Jesus before us and want us to be amazed at certain things about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And what Matthew highlights throughout his gospel is that Jesus is the long-awaited king. And this gospel is written to Jewish believers or to Jews who were still considering the claims of Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the one that God had promised would come. And so if you're here this morning and if you're not sure what to make of Jesus and would put yourself in that category of being someone who's still considering him, and we are so glad that you are here. 
We want Red Mountain Church to be a place where people like you, no matter where you are on the question of what to make of Jesus, find friendships and a sense of belonging here. And we would love to be a part of the process as you consider who Jesus is. So we're going to look at Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. You can follow along in your worship booklet or your Bibles, but this is God's Word. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I don't know if you're like me, but at this point I'm thinking, there's some really good like middle names to put in my back pocket. (laughs) Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary." of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the ways that your your word is at work in our hearts and in our midst as a community. Lord, we pray that as we look at this opening genealogy to the book of Matthew, that you would change our hearts, that you would show us who Jesus is through this text. So please, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a little roadmap for what I want to cover this morning. It's just that God's grace is displayed in, number one, in the story that Jesus comes to move forward. Number two, in the family tree of Jesus. And number three, in the rule of Jesus over all things. So the story of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, and the rule of Jesus. So first, God's grace is displayed in the story that Jesus comes to move forward. So this genealogy, and really the Gospel of Matthew as a whole makes connections wherever possible with the Old Testament story of God's work in the world. Jesus doesn't step into history doing something brand new. 
I mean, he does bring newness. It is the new covenant that he comes to establish, but it's not totally disconnected from what has happened before him. No, Matthew wants us to see how Jesus comes to fulfill and move forward what God had begun to do long ago. He wants us to see all the connections. And that's why Matthew begins his gospel with a family tree that specifically connects Jesus with Abraham and David, two massively important figures in the Old Testament. Abraham is important because so many of the promises that Jesus came to fulfill were originally given to him. So you find those in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. These promises are summarized very concisely there. And there are four elements to God's promise given to Abraham that Jesus comes to fulfill. You can summarize it this way. It's a place God leads Abraham away from his land and promises to give him a new, better place to live. So place, then people. God tells Abraham to say goodbye to the people he has known his whole life. And that he will make a new people out of his descendants. So people, place, presence. God promises to be with Abraham, to bless him, and to defend him from danger. And lastly, purpose. So all of these blessings of place, people, and presence, all of these blessings are given for this purpose. So that Abraham and his family would themselves bring blessing to the whole world. To all the families of the earth, as Genesis 12 verse 3 says. So Matthew connects Jesus to Abraham because Jesus comes to move forward God's plan to bring blessing to the world. And don't miss this. Jesus takes each of these elements of God's promise to Abraham and reveals a new depth to their beauty and magnitude. So in Jesus, we see that the promise of a new place wasn't primarily about the land of Canaan. It was about the new heavens and the new earth that all those who belong to Jesus will one day live together on. And in Jesus, we see that the promise of a people wasn't primarily about the physical lineage of Abraham. It was about our hearts being made new by faith in Jesus and seeking after him together with all those whose lives have been changed by his grace. And in Jesus, the the promise of his presence with us is displayed in a way that was never seen before. In him, we find that God will stop at absolutely nothing to bring his chosen people back to himself. The God of the universe will go even to the humiliation of a cross to make the way for us to be brought back into relationship with himself. And lastly, Jesus comes to show that this global purpose that was given to Abraham to bring the blessing of salvation to the world lies at the center of his heart. That reminds me of Job 7, verse 17, where Job asks God, What is mankind that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? So in Jesus, we see God's heart opened up, his affections set on us, and that nothing will stop him from coming after us to make us his own. So here are three things, among many others, that Matthew wants us to see about the story of the world and Jesus' place in it. These are kind of the three sub-points to point number one. The continuity of the story, the priority of the story, and the grace of the story. So the continuity of the story, you know, Matthew wants us to see that history is his story, God's story. The history of the world is the story of the one true God's one plan to rescue humanity from their sins and all their consequences. And that's the story of the Old Testament too. 
God didn't operate on different terms with His people in the Old Testament. There's continuity and cohesion within every chapter of the story of God's work in the world. You can think about it like this. I heard this at Covenant Seminary. That the chapters or the covenants of the story in the Bible are like layers to a layer cake. I love sweets, so if I get a chance to make a reference to some sweet treat, sometimes I can't help myself. But just as a layer cake builds on top of the layers under it, so the covenants that God makes with humanity, they don't completely replace what's come before. They build on top of what God's been doing beforehand. I think this is so important because it affects the way that we read our Bibles, especially the Old Testament. People were saved in the Old Testament just like they are in the New. We look back to the cross while they look forward to a coming Savior, but they were saved by trusting in God's promise of forgiveness just like we are. And we just know now that salvation from the judgment we deserve is to be found only in Jesus. That's why Acts 4 verse 12 says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The rescue we so desperately need can only be found in Jesus. And that's why what we make of Jesus matters so much. Which leads us to the second subpoint: the priority of the story. So after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he joins a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he tells them this in Luke 24. He said, Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus did this many other times as well. But here he is claiming that the entirety of Scripture is all about him. Now that's quite the audacious claim unless you're something more than a mere man. And Jesus consistently claimed that he was much more than that. He was a man, but he was more. He claimed to be the one true God and to be worthy of our worship. You see, all of history and all of our lives are meant to be lived with this priority too. To enjoy and exalt Jesus because he's worthy of it all. Life isn't supremely about our happiness. It's about him, but gloriously It turns out that making much of Jesus is actually the way that we enjoy the deepest happiness imaginable. So I think this raises the question for all of us, what are we living for? Like truly living for day to day. What drives us and motivates our decisions? What claims the majority of our time and our mental energy? Is it achievement and advancement in our careers? Or is it acceptance and approval that we want from others, or maybe the affections of another person. We all want to experience deep intimacy and love with another person. And our hearts crave these things, and none of these things are bad, but we can turn any of these good things into a God replacement if we're not careful and we're not keeping watch over our hearts. These These things are good only when they're enjoyed in their proper place. We can only make one thing our supreme priority and the center of our worlds. And when we make that ultimate priority anything other than Jesus, the one that we were made to know and enjoy, things don't work out so well. The deep soul satisfaction that we all long for eludes us when we try to squeeze it out of other things that were never meant to satisfy us that deeply. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 5. This is verse 15. 
It says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is what we were meant to live for. And we know this, and yet living it out is so much more difficult day to day. But true happiness is found when knowing and walking with Jesus is our heart's highest priority. And lastly, the grace of the story. When we look at our lives, the pattern we find is that we are so bad at living for Jesus. At least I feel that way so often. Living for ourselves is our heart's default mode of operation. And we're powerless to change ourselves. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why he came, to rescue us from our sins and to give us new hearts so that we could learn to walk in his ways. But it takes a lifetime to learn it. But at the heart of the Bible story is this. The salvation of sinners comes through the death of the one true king. Salvation through substitution. This is the heart of the Bible and of the gospel. Jesus takes the place of condemnation that we deserve so that we can enjoy the place of acceptance that only he deserves. He was crushed under God's wrath so that we might be welcomed in to enjoy his presence forever. Our inclusion in God's family came at the infinite cost of Christ's life. And yet he laid it down joyfully, knowing that his sacrifice would be our only way back into God's presence. So God's grace is displayed in the story that Jesus comes to move forward. And it's also displayed in the family tree of Jesus. You know what's remarkable about this genealogy, this family tree It shows us that Jesus knew what it was like to come from a deeply broken family. The people mentioned in this list highlight not the grandeur and awesomeness of Jesus' lineage. Instead, they highlight the horrendous moral ugliness of his family line. Before we talk about the ugliness, let me mention the dignity of humanity first. So the dignity of humanity and the dark side of humanity are the subpoints here. But we can see this in the women that Matthew includes in this list. So women weren't typically included in lists like this in the ancient world. But Matthew's inclusion of them dignified women in a world that looked down on them as inferior. And Jesus consistently demonstrated this kind of love and concern for those who were looked down upon and disregarded in society. So that's the first thing I wanted us to see here. That Matthew, having been deeply influenced by his time with Jesus has come to a place of recognizing the dignity and worth of all of God's image bearers. And that, after a life of being a tax collector, taking advantage of people. And this is something we, too, need to continue remembering. Every person on the planet, no matter how different they are from us, has been made in God's image. And because of that, we ought to treat them with dignity and respect. No matter how strongly we may disagree with them on certain things. We honor people when we treat them with kindness. And our treatment of others and the way that we speak to them can either be a bridge for the gospel or a barrier to it. So there's dignity mentioned here, and there's also the dark side of humanity. Rahab and Ruth, they had shady pasts. Rahab lived a life of prostitution before placing her faith in God's promise. Ruth was a Moabitess. The Moabites were people known for their sexual immorality and idolatry. Tamar, 
Her children were a result of an incestuous union between her and her father-in-law, Judah, one of God's own people. And instead of calling her Bathsheba, Matthew intentionally calls her the wife of Uriah. No doubt to bring to our minds the moral ugliness of David's adultery and the murder of one of his own men. All because of his fleshly cravings. So see, Matthew wants us to see how messy and how ugly Jesus' family line is. And yet he goes on to show us through the rest of his gospel how Jesus loves to take our moral ugliness and make out of us something beautiful to demonstrate and display his grace. But ever since the fall in Genesis 3, we have found ways to try to cover up our moral hideousness. We either embrace performing, trying to be really good people so that maybe our good deeds will outweigh our bad, or we embrace pretending. We deny the reality of our moral badness and tell ourselves that we're pretty good. Or sometimes we accept that we're bad, but we have no hope of ever experiencing anything different, so we hide. We're afraid to be honest with ourselves about what's inside and to open up with others about it. We're afraid to be known because we fear that we won't be loved. So sometimes we settle for superficial relationships. And both of these approaches, either performing or pretending, either disregard or distort the gospel. Because God has set us free from the need to perform because Jesus performed where we have failed. He lived the perfectly good life that we should have lived. And by faith in him, that record of obedience can be given to us as if we had lived it out ourselves. And that's what makes us pleasing in God's sight. And God has also set us free from pretending because Jesus already knows how bad we are. And yet he came to rescue us anyways. So thankfully the Lord in Jesus has met the problem of our dark side with the provision of his deliverance. We can be rescued from the judgment we deserve because Jesus stood in our place and took it for us. He paid the price and endured God's righteous anger against our sin. And because of that, we are made right with God by faith. And he also promises that in grace, he will be at work in the midst of our broken families. Even Jesus knew what it was like to see family dysfunction and unhealthy patterns in family relationships. And isn't this one of the most difficult places for us to truly believe that God wants to work and to bring about change? Of course, he doesn't always change things the way we'd like him to. And we're powerless to change anything about what we want to see happen in someone else's life. We're responsible for us, but we can pray and hope that God delights to work renewal into the midst of broken families. In Christ, the deliverance of humanity has been achieved. And in Christ, we find hope as we continue navigating the messiness of relationships in this broken world. And although our deliverance has been accomplished once and for all, we still wait for the renewal of all things when Christ returns. But we wait with great hope. Because the renewal coming at the end of history is breaking into the here and now already by God's grace and by the work of His Spirit. And that renewal comes into our broken families and our broken stories and begins healing things. So I think there's a healthy optimism that we can live with when it comes to seeing change in our own hearts and in our relationships. Because God's grace truly does change things. But there's also a healthy realism that we should embrace 
Because the brokenness of the world runs so much deeper than any of us realize. And sometimes the change we long for doesn't come this side of heaven. Now lastly, God's grace is displayed in the rule of Jesus over all things. So after connecting Jesus to Abraham, Matthew then connects the coming of Jesus to David. David, of course, is significant in the Old Testament story because he's God's chosen king. He was far from perfect, but he served as a picture of the ultimate king to come. And that's why Matthew connects Jesus to David. He is the long-awaited king, the one that God's people had been looking for, and the one that we need to rule over us. And that's also what's going on here with the number 14 in this genealogy. So this is something we're not as accustomed to, but the Hebrew language, kind of like Roman numerals, had numbers associated with specific letters. And what's significant about the number 14 is that the letters of David's name add up to be 14. So 14 is a number associated with royalty and kingship. And Matthew here in this genealogy skips over some of the people in the family line, much like maybe some of us have family members we just think it'd be better not to mention. But Matthew, you know, he does this intentionally because he's trying to make a point. From the very start of his gospel, Matthew wants us to see that one of his primary emphases on who Jesus is, that he is the long-awaited king, the one God promised long ago would come, and he comes to reverse the effects of sin and to begin making things right again. But having laid down his life to rescue his people from their sins, Savior King, And he works redemptively in the world to push back the curse and to renew the world. And the renewal of the world begins with the renewal of human hearts when they trust in Christ to save them. This really is the greatest news the world will ever hear. But it's also important to remember that the blessings of Jesus' sacrifice are automatic. I tell our college students that the gospel is like sunscreen. It doesn't do us any good unless we apply it to ourselves. And the way to have the saving benefits of Jesus applied to our lives is by turning, trusting, and treasuring. And we do these throughout our entire lives, not just when we first come to know Jesus. But we turn from our sins because we understand that our sins are what led Jesus to the cross. And we trust in Him as the only way to have our sins forgiven and to be made right with God. And lastly, if our hearts have been made new by His grace and we begin treasuring Jesus above all else... We do none of this perfectly this side of heaven, but by grace, a new trajectory for our lives has been set. And we begin moving in the direction of a growing love and loyalty to King Jesus. But no matter how long you've been growing in your relationship with Jesus, loving and obeying Him will always be challenging. Dane Ortland says in one of his books, this was the reflection quote in your worship booklet, that he says, left in neutral... We all tend to drift away from the wonder of the gospel. Our hearts, they grow cold, don't they? They need to be rekindled. We forget how amazing the gospel is. But God uses even the most broken, most difficult parts of our stories to show us who He is and to further His work in our hearts. Many of you already know this. This summer was really hard for us as a family. Anna almost didn't make it after giving birth. Our fourth child, Jack, she just lost a ton of blood, um, had her first C-section, emergency surgery a couple hours later in the ICU for a day and a half on a ventilator. But we're so thankful that God preserved her life. But it just has me thinking about when tragedies occur in life, 
whether it's abuse or betrayal or the hurt or loss of a loved one, whatever it looks like in your life, those times can make it particularly difficult to trust in God's promises and that He has good purposes in our lives. And yet, as hard as it is to believe, I think that seasons of suffering, the valleys that God's prepared for us to walk through, and they all look different, but they are also opportunities to lean into His presence and to grow closer to Him even when we don't understand what he's up to. So in light of all that's happened this summer with my family, I've been both challenged and comforted by this verse. A couple verses. So this is Psalm 119, verse 75. And the psalm writer says this to God. He says, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Job 13, verse 15, even says it this way. Speaking of God, Job says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Or Psalm 23, 4. No doubt this is a verse that's very dear to many people's hearts in this room. It's well known. But even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I've been thinking a lot about those, how badly I want to be able to live that way when I'm walking through suffering. And I'm comforted by verses like these because they communicate the stability and trustworthiness of God's character. Even when things are going horribly wrong. God, in His infinite wisdom, has determined to use even our sufferings to draw us into deeper communion with Himself. Psalm 23, verse 6, this is how that psalm ends. It says that this is true even in the middle of the darkest valley. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow is a military word that conjures up the imagery of uh, an army chasing down a retreating army. So God's goodness and mercy are chasing us down all the days of our lives. That's the comfort that we have in Christ. But I'm challenged by these verses also because it's so hard to receive trouble from God's hands and wholeheartedly believe that God has good purposes behind it all. And what amazes me about these verses is that these people lived in the Old Testament, so they didn't have the astounding demonstration of God's heart for us in the cross like we do. They still had God's promises and experienced His faithful care to be sure, but they didn't have what we have. And yet I find it so difficult to fight for the deep trust that they had in God's purpose over their lives. So living when we do in redemptive history, I think that the only way that we get that depth of faith in the midst of suffering is by looking consistently to the cross And growing that reflex of directing our gaze there when we face trouble. The cross is where the long-awaited king laid down his life, showing us the unfathomable depths of his love for us and reminding us that he doesn't stand off at a distance when we suffer. No, he jumps into the mess that we have made of this world, suffering the punishment we deserve for our sins also that we might be the recipients of His saving grace and enjoy the new world that He is making through Christ. So that's what the church is to be about, fixing our eyes on Jesus as our only hope for the renewal of our hearts and the eventual renewal of the whole world. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church that is aiming to do that, not flawlessly, but faithfully. May God help all of us to continue enjoying and extending the grace that we've received from the long-awaited King. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for 
all that you have done to rescue us. Thank you for laying down your life. And Lord, may we, in the midst of suffering, learn to look back there, to find hope, and to have our hearts renewed and infused with courage. Because we see that if you did that, you will not fail to care for us in every other aspect of life. So may that encourage our hearts and help us live faithfully before you, before a watching world, and pray that we would see opportunities that we have to share the good news of Jesus with others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.